Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. You're not going to get rid of me that easy. I'll cut you up. Mother? Johnny, what are you doing to her? Mama, are you all right? What's happening? Cheryl, get away from the door. Mama, please, I... I can make some coffee. We can go down to the kitchen and you can both cool off. Just please stop fighting. Cheryl, get away from that door. I'm not going to tell you again. No, shut up. No. Mother, please let me in. Please? What? What do you want? You don't have to take that, Mother. You know, you got a real problem with obedience with this kid. What she really needs is a... Oh! Uh, oh my God! What have you done? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the case of Johnny Stampanato. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Today we'll be looking back at one of the most shocking and scandalous homicides in Hollywood history. And the cast of characters reads like a fantastic script of its own. The glamorous starlet Lana Turner. Her tough guy gangster boyfriend, Johnny Stampanato. And the accused murderer. Lana's 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl Crane. At least that's the official story. But if there's anything we've learned from looking into cold cases, it's that the official story and the true story are rarely the same. The thought that a teenage girl might be the one to take down a grown man and a hardened criminal does seem pretty unlikely. So what is it that we're missing? Was Cheryl really the killer? Or was she forced to take the fall to save her mother's career and reputation? Was there a conspiracy to kill Johnny Stampanato? Or is there some other explanation for what happened? It's a classic tale of Tinseltown tragedy. With more twists and turns than Mulholland Drive. Lana Turner was one of the original blonde bombshells. Like Jean Harlow before her and Bridget Bardot after, she was one of the most sought-after celebrities throughout the 1940s and 50s. The story of her discovery is the stuff showbiz dreams are made of. Legend has it that the beautiful teenager was discovered by an agent while sipping a soda at Schwab's drugstore on Sunset Boulevard. Well, in reality, she was across the street at the Top Hat Cafe. And it wasn't an agent who discovered her, it was Billy Wilkerson, the original Hollywood reporter, founder and publisher of the trade paper of the same name. And back then, in 1937, her name wasn't Lana, it was Julia. You ought to be in picture. <laughs> Jules, Psst. Julia, come here. What is it? See that fellow over there? With the mustache? That's the one, he'd like to have a word with you. Oh. He's not going to try anything, is he? He's on the level, I swear. Cross your heart. Hope to die. Well, all right. But if he puts his hand on my knee, I'm going to box your ears. Dream of my heart. Billy, come over here and meet Miss Turner. Julia Turner, this is Mr. William Wilkerson. How do you do? It's very nice to meet you, Miss Turner. I don't mean to keep you from your friends, so I'll get right to the point. How would you like to be in the movie? Gee, I don't know. 
I'll have to ask my mother. Wilkerson left Turner with his card. It took a little convincing, but eventually Julia's mother gave approval. Shortly thereafter, the young Miss Turner had a meeting with Zeppo Marx. As in the Marx Brothers? The very same. After he left the comedy world, he started a career as a casting agent. Within two days, Turner had signed a contract with Warner Brothers. But the studio execs decided that Julia needed a new name, something with a little more flash. She suggested Lana for herself. And just like that, a star was born. Later that year, Lana appeared in a low-budget pulp movie called They Won't Forget. An apt title for Lana's appearance, if not the movie itself. The part was small but left quite an impression on audiences. When Lana appeared, walking down the street in a pencil skirt and tight sweater, audiences cheered. Lana and her mother went to see the movie at the theater and the crowd's reaction was so enthusiastic, Lana was shocked and embarrassed. Well, they certainly seem to like you. Yes, it certainly seems that way. Don't be shy, darling. The sweater looks very fetching on you. It shows off your best attributes. Mother! Because of her appearance in that scene, she became known as the Sweater Girl. Lana hated it, but the nickname stuck. It's probably what helped launch her into stardom. Within a year, she had made three more movies and signed with MGM. By 1939, she was at the top of the marquee. A full-fledged movie star and certified sex symbol, Lana Turner was a long way from where she started. Rye whiskey, rye whiskey, rye whiskey, I cry. She was born Julia Jean Mildred Frances Turner in Wallace, Idaho. Her mother, also called Mildred, was a beautician and taught Julia how to make the most of her natural beauty. Julia's mother taught her that looks were everything. A lesson that stuck with her throughout her life. Her father, Virgil, was a miner. It was also rumored that he was a gambler and a bootlegger. That rumor gained credence when he was robbed and murdered after a gambling deal gone sour in 1930. After her father's death, Julia and her mother moved from Idaho to San Francisco. And then from San Francisco to Los Angeles, where she attended Hollywood High, until that fateful day at the soda shop. During World War II, she posed for a series of posters that became favorite pinups among the GIs serving overseas. I get bottom bunk. You can have it. I've got all I need right here. Whoa, who's the broad? This is Miss Lana Turner, and she's going to be keeping me company until we whoop those crowds back into shape. Lana, Lana, Lana. Here we go, boys. Man your stations. As an actress, she went on to share the screen with Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Robert Taylor. She appeared in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Three Musketeers, and The Bad and the Beautiful. But one of her most famous performances was as the icy adulteress in The Postman Always Rings Twice. There's one thing we could do that would fix everything for us. What? Pray for something to happen to Nick? Something like that. Car. Well, you suggested it yourself once, didn't you? I was only joking. Were you? Yes, I was. Or had you started to think about it a little? Maybe I said it, but I didn't really mean it. Well, I say it again now, and I do mean it. The vixen image MGM crafted for her was heavily influenced by the events in her real life. Well, as far as the public was concerned, the two Lanas, the real one and the one they watched on screen, were one and the same. She worked hard, but that didn't stop her from playing even harder, often to the annoyance of the studios in charge of minding her public persona. The rags went from calling Lana the sweater girl to the queen of the nightclubs. 
This was a time when columnists and photographers hung out at places like Ciro's, the Brown Derby, and the Trocadero, just to keep tabs on who went where and with whom, all fodder for the stories that would run the next day. Lana made nightly appearances at the clubs on the Sunset Strip, and a revolving door of men came in and out of her life. In total, Lana was married eight times to seven men. Wow! Her first marriage was at 20 to the clarinetist and band leader Artie Shaw. It lasted less than six months. About two years later, she eloped with a nobody from nowhere restaurateur Stephen Crane. When they realized that Stephen had never fully divorced his first wife, he and Lana annulled their marriage, then re-eloped, and a short time later, divorced permanently, yet amicably. That sounds like a lot of paperwork. Well, during the time they were together, Stephen and Lana had the child she had been desperately wanting, a baby girl they named Cheryl. God, Stephen, isn't she gorgeous? Of course she is. She gets it from her mother. Not at the moment, I'm sure. I must look like a wreck. But I don't even mind, not really. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Despite Lana's apparent baby fever, she wasn't willing to give up her glamorous lifestyle for motherhood. For the most part, Cheryl was raised by a series of nannies and her grandmother. Mommy, mommy! There's nothing wrong with my ears, dear. No need to shout. Are you going out again? Yes, darling. Where? I think tonight we're going to the truck, but we'll have to see what the crowd is like. Don't touch that. Can you put some lipstick on me? <laughs> Why, of course, my love. Come here. There. Look at yourself in the mirror. Do you like it? I think it suits you. Mommy, can I come with you? Certainly not. Maybe one day, but today is not that day. Are you going to come home later? That's none of your concern. Miss Turner, the car's here. Tell him I'm coming just now. Wait, I didn't get a good night hug. There. <laughs> Not so tight, Cheryl. I love you, Mommy. Sweetheart. The hair. Lana continued her series of troubled relationships with some of the most eligible bachelors in Hollywood. At various points, she was linked to Frank Sinatra, Richard Burton, Howard Hughes, Fernando Lamas, Dean Martin, Kirk Douglas, and Tyrone Power. It's impossible to know what did and didn't happen with any of those men, but in 1948, Lana married again. Well, this time to millionaire Bob Topping. They divorced in 1951, and then she married actor Lex Barker, best known for playing Tarzan. At six foot four and with an athletic build, Lex cut an imposing figure. A fact that remains especially terrible when you learn that he sexually abused Cheryl repeatedly between the ages of 10 and 13. Cheryl tried to tell her mother, but Lana wouldn't hear of it. Until one incident was so violent that Cheryl had to be taken to the hospital. And Lana couldn't deny it anymore. She kicked Lex out of the house and they divorced shortly after. It was a dark period in Lana's life. It was 1957 and Lana's career was on the decline. She had been out of MGM for about a year, daring to venture the industry as a free agent. When she was offered the part of Constance McKenzie in Peyton Place, she couldn't say no. Lana accepted because she needed the money, but the part was perfect for her. As Connie, 
Lana played the straight-laced mother of a teenage daughter living in a small town. It was considered a departure from her earlier roles as a voracious man-eater. Well, the movie's reception was excellent, and things were starting to look up. And after her separation from Lex Barker, Lana was ready for a change. So when a tall, dark stranger showed an interest, Lana was intrigued. They asked me how I knew my true love was true. The man calling himself John Steele charmed his way into Lana's life by telephoning every day. After the phone calls came flower deliveries. And then he asked around to learn what kind of music she liked, and then he sent records. Well, that sounds like stalker behavior. Well, in retrospect, there were some pretty glaring red flags. But one might say Lana's instincts regarding men were less than stellar. Besides, John was charming and gentlemanly and sweetly attentive. Before long, Lana was smitten. Wow. What is it? I am completely starstruck. Oh, stop it. No, really. Really, I mean it. I just can't believe you're real. Does that feel real? Ow! Hey, easy there. (laughs) I guess I know I'm not dreaming now. (laughs) Well, if you are, then I am too. Oh, I really mean it. I mean, you must hear this all the time, but... One of the guys in my platoon had your poster. No. Which one? Uh, I think he was sitting by the pool or something. The one on the diving board. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. And now that you've seen me in the flesh? Some nights I just lay there staring and and think no dame could really be that beautiful. I I beg your pardon? I was right. You're not that beautiful. You are even more so. Shortly after their relationship became public, a friend told Lana the truth about Johnny. The man who had been calling himself John Steele was actually Johnny Stompanato. A notorious gangster with close connections to the head of the L.A. mob, Mickey Cohen. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's continue the story. John Steele was just one of Johnny Stompanato's aliases. At various points, he was known as Handsome Harry, Johnny Stomp, and Oscar. Johnny Stompanato Jr. was born in Woodstock, Illinois. Both of his parents had been born in Italy, but married in Brooklyn. Johnny's mother died shortly after he was born. He had three older siblings, two sisters, and a brother. And his father remarried a short time later. For the most part, Johnny grew up in a traditional middle-class home. But after his freshman year in high school, John Sr. sent him to military school. In 1943, Stompanato joined the U.S. Marines and served with the 1st Service Battalion in the South Pacific. He spent time in Palua and Okinawa and, after the war, left the Corps to stay in China in 1946. 
He remained in China for a while, working as a civil bureaucrat. Though when he talked about his time there later on, he claimed to have run nightclubs into bankruptcy. What a bizarre and specific claim to make. I'm sure he had his reasons. He also met a girl named Sarah Utish. Sarah was a Muslim, originally from Turkey. Johnny converted to Islam so they could marry. After their wedding, Sarah and Johnny moved back to his hometown of Woodstock. There, she gave birth to their son, John III. Never the jack of all trades, Johnny got a job as a bread salesman. But shortly thereafter, Johnny abandoned his wife and child and took off for the West Coast. And just a gigolo, gigolo. everywhere I go, gigolo. people When he arrived in Los Angeles, he started seeing a wealthier, older widow whom he referred to as the dog. Johnny conned her into giving him enough money to start the Myrtlewood Gift Shop in Westwood Village, where he sold cheap bits of pottery and wood carvings at fine art prices. He lived in an apartment in the swanky Bel Air neighborhood. Paid for by another one of his girlfriends. Eventually, he became a bagman and driver for crime boss Mickey Cohen. Mickey was known as the king of Los Angeles with strong ties to the New York Mafia. And despite his criminal status, Mickey was something of a Hollywood darling and could often be found hobnobbing with celebrities at industry events and parties. Mickey loved Hollywood, and Hollywood loved Mickey. But that didn't change the fact that he was a dangerous and powerful guy. Definitely not so one you would want to mess with. Over time, Mickey and Johnny collaborated on a number of scams, and Johnny became one of the top enforcers in the L.A. mob. Thanks to Mickey, Johnny got a taste for the celebrity lifestyle and became a popular playboy. Conning beautiful, wealthy older women was his specialty. It was rumored that he kept a stash of compromising photos and recordings of celebrities, just in case. At different points, he owned and operated a pet store, a jewelry store, and sold used furniture and cars. Mm, busy guy. Well, Johnny always had an angle going. He was arrested a total of seven times, but never officially convicted of a crime. The charges ranged from vagrancy to armed robbery. By the time he set his sights on Lana Turner, he was well known to the Los Angeles Police Department as a con man, blackmailer, extortionist, pimp, and point man for illegal abortion parlors run by Mickey's men. Whoa. He was a bad, bad man. And as you might imagine, Lana had mixed feelings about dating a criminal. But she didn't break up with him right away. On the one hand, she had an image to maintain and didn't particularly want to be associated with the underworld element. But years later, Lana described her intense attraction. Against her better judgment, Lana continued the affair. Although she did attempt to hold him at arm's length. Johnny and Lana had begun to fight regularly, but she was conveniently scheduled to shoot a movie in England called Another Time, Another Place with Sean Connery. Lana figured that while she was out of the country, her affair with Johnny would come to a natural conclusion. Mm, she was wrong. Unannounced and uninvited, he arrived in England, much to Lana's dismay. Lanita! Johnny! What is it, baby? I thought you'd be happy to see me. I am... Um, it's just... such a surprise. I can't believe you came all this way. Hey, I've been across the Pacific. The puny little Atlantic Ocean couldn't keep me away from my girl. For a while, it seemed like nothing could stop Johnny from getting to Lana. One day in England, he barged right onto the set in a jealous fit brandishing a gun. Fortunately, Sean Connery, professional bodybuilder and former Mr. Universe contestant, was there on the scene. Cut. That's tea. 
We'll be back at half past. They really do love their tea around here. They do indeed. Can I get you one? Honestly, I could use something a little stronger. We have that too, you know. Lana! What are you doing talking to this caterpillar eyebrow mick? Excuse me? John, you can't be here. Why not? You're on a break. I heard him. Johnny, please leave. You're making a scene. <gasps> oh, you want to see a scene? I'll give you a murder scene right here in front of everybody. John. I swear to God, I don't know why I waste my time. I flew all the way out here just to be treated with such hostility, such disrespect. <clears throat> oh, what the... <coughs> you just stay there for a minute or I'll lay you out again. Are you all right, Lana? I will be. After the incident on set, Lana had Johnny deported for entering the UK illegally. Well, it wasn't the easy ending that Lana had hoped for, but she was relieved to finally have him out of her life, at least until she returned to LA. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Lana wrapped shooting on Another Time, Another Place, and planned to take a relaxing vacation in Acapulco on her own, far from the stresses of Johnny, Cheryl, and the Hollywood gossip mill. But when she arrived in Denmark during a layover, Johnny was there, along with a full team of reporters. Johnny? Hello, baby. What are you doing here? I'm taking a quiet vacation with my girl, who I've been missing since she was in jelly old England. Smile for the picture, sweetheart. Lana! Lana! Where are you headed next? How was it working with Sean Connery? Did any of that on-screen lovemaking carry over into real life? I'm sorry. I won't be answering any questions this afternoon. Lana insisted that she had no idea how Johnny knew when she would be leaving England, or that she would be flying to Mexico by way of Copenhagen. She also suspected that Johnny had asked the reporters to join him as a precaution. He knew that she valued her reputation above all else, and as long as the press was watching, she would avoid conflict at any cost. Ooh, very sneaky. Johnny stayed with Lana throughout her Mexican vacation. He continued to beat her and once again pulled his gun when she tried to kick him out of her room. Most times, he didn't have to get physical because the mere threat of violence terrified Lana into complying with whatever struck his fancy. It was stressful to be sure. But while they were there, Lana got some very good news. Miss Turner, there's a call for you at the front desk. Who could that be? Is it my daughter? Your agent. Hi, this is Lana. Yes? Really? Who else got it? What? And when is the ceremony? Yes, I'll be back. I mean, of course I'll be back. Lana, what is it? Well, that's just about the swellest news a girl can get. Congratulations to you two. Couldn't have done it without you. Talk soon. Don't keep me in suspense. What's all this great news? I've been nominated for an Academy Award. For Peyton Place. (laughs) That's my girl. We gotta get some champagne for this celebration. Uh, hey, hombre, uh, get us a bottle of champagne and make sure it's cold. We're going to the Oscars. Hey, I'm gonna need a tux. Yes, I suppose you will. When Johnny and Lana returned to Los Angeles, the press was waiting for them again. A photographer snapped a picture of their reunion with Cheryl and it ran with the headline, Lana Turner Returns with Mob Figure. Johnny was thrilled by the prospect of attending the Oscars, but Lana made it clear to him that he would not be going. She was too concerned about her image to be escorted to the biggest party of the year with a known mafioso. When the big night came, Lana took Cheryl as her date. 
Although the award went to Joanne Woodward that year, Lana and Cheryl enjoyed a wonderful night of glitz, glamour, and freedom from John's menacing presence. All while Johnny sat at home, watching the ceremony on television, getting madder by the minute. By the time Lana made it home, Johnny was there waiting for them, seething in a blind rage. What could have been the best night of Lana's life left her bruised, broken, and tearful. The next day, Cheryl saw the bruises, and Lana was forced to come clean. She told her what Johnny had done to her in London, how she wanted to leave him, but things just kept getting worse. Cheryl suggested calling the police, but that was the last thing that Lana wanted. The police meant publicity, and that could spell the end of her career. Like so many battered women, in her position, the shame that Lana felt outweighed her better judgment. Well, shame that somehow she had brought all this on herself and her daughter. Mother, you are being unreasonable. We have to call the police. I said no. I know you're worried about the press, but this is more important. No, nothing is more important, don't you understand? My image is everything. Everything that we have, everything that we own is because of the way things look, because of the way I look or looked. I just can't. What about Dad? No. No one can know. Not your dad, not Grandma. At least for now. I'm going to leave him. I will. I just need the right time. Lana planned to break up with Johnny on the night of Good Friday, 1958. Cheryl was home at the time and could hear the fight escalating. Get out of my house! I'll cut you good, baby. You'll never work again. And don't think I won't get your mother and your kid. I have people to do the job for me. And I'll watch. If you touch... Oh. Mother? Johnny, what are you doing? Mother? Are you alright? What's happening? Cheryl, get away from the door. Listen to your mother, little girl. Mama, please, I... I can make some coffee. We can go down to the kitchen and you can both cool off. Just please stop fighting. Cheryl, get away from that door. John is just leaving. No, shut up. No. God damn it. As Johnny and Lana argued behind closed doors, Cheryl went down to the kitchen and grabbed a carving knife from one of the drawers. When she returned upstairs, the fight had died down a bit. Johnny was grabbing his clothes from the closet as he presumably made his way out. Armed with the knife, Cheryl pleaded with her mother to open the door. Mother, please let me in. Please. What? What do you want? You don't have to take that, Mother. Lana was standing between Johnny and Cheryl. Cheryl couldn't see what he was holding, but it looked to be some type of weapon. You know, you got a real problem with obedience with this kid. What she really needs is... As Johnny moved past Cheryl, she plunged the knife into his abdomen. My God. Cheryl. What have you done? Johnny dropped what he had been holding. An armful of hangers. Johnny. Johnny. Cheryl, what just happened? (laughs) The teenage daughter of a Hollywood movie star had killed a real, live Los Angeles gangster. Mm, At least that's the story that the papers ran. Hollywood, California, April 5th. Last night, Lana Turner's 14-year-old daughter stabbed to death an underworld figure who had been her mother's romantic interest for the last year. The tall girl was calm as she told her story in the Beverly Hills police station. I was in my room talking to Mother when he came in and began yelling at her. She told him, I don't want you to argue in front of the baby. Then Mother and he went into Mother's room, and I went to the door to listen. He kept saying he was going to have her cut and disfigured. I thought he was going to get her. 
It makes for a great story. One that's almost too good to be true. The valiant daughter standing up to her mother's abuser. Taking down the menacing villain in one righteous stroke. But is that really what happened? Well, it all seems so incredible. And most often, things that seem too good to be true mm, often are. Was this really a simple case of justifiable homicide? Or is there more to this story of Hollywood scandal and tragedy? Join us next time as we look into the investigation and trial following Johnny Stompanato's death. With the high-profile lawyer, the notorious mob boss, and the subsequent inquest that led to Lana Turner's greatest performance yet. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I'm Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Jay Silvers, with production assistance by Maggie Admire, and written by Lauren Cannon. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Alex Daltis, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Sammy Nye, and Steve Pinto. Steve Pinto.